Well, thank you so much, everyone, who uh, helped us uh, come into your throne room with, come into the courts of, of the Lord with thanksgiving here and to uh, honor him and bless him. And uh, uh, what a time uh, uh, to be able to just sing his praises. Now, I'm going to do a test for you folks when you get back here. I can't wait till the first person says you never sing hymns at your church because there can't be any more hymn of a hymn than rescue the perishing. So if somebody says in the next two months, why don't we sing hymns, I'm going to know you weren't staying up uh, with uh, church. No, just kidding, but uh, not really just kidding. So uh, love that, and uh, thanks, worship team, for... uh, uh, helping us worship the Lord. Well, let's do this. Let's open our Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3. And while we're doing that, let's remember that this is Peter, not Paul. Paul wrote many of the uh, epistles uh, of, uh, and uh, a lot of the New Testament. But this isn't Paul. This is Peter, and that's important. And Peter was impacted in a profound way by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, at the end of our uh, Lord's life here on earth, as he laid down his life, he was going through the trials that we so often talk about during Good Friday service and on into the resurrection weekend. And Peter denied our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He denied him. And what a feeling of failing Peter must have had in his heart as a human. And yet in the end of the book of John, our Lord graciously and beautifully and tenderly and kindly restores Peter. And that's the one who's writing this first letter, the first epistle of Peter. Remember, there are several themes that run throughout the book. Hope, having a confidence and an assurance of all future glory and blessing. That's the hope that Peter talks about. And faith, surrendering all to God. And obeying his word in spite of the circumstances and in spite of any consequences, that's faith. And salvation and also um, submission. And now as we get to the final part of uh, the book, we're going to be examining suffering. Suffering. Remember, Peter was writing this to the pilgrims, verse 1 of, the disper- of chapter 1, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Remember that. He was writing this as letters or a letter, and it was to be read in these different fellowships out in the Roman provinces. And remember, we've talked about this several times. There was intense persecution happening in Rome of the Christians. But history tells us that this persecution spread uh, to the provinces and would spread to the provinces. And here you have people who've been saved by the grace of God and surrendered their life to God through Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, living in 
pagan and heathen, heathen culture. And they would be persecuted and run into many trials. In fact, our Lord himself has said, when there is tribulation in this world, in fact, there, you know, what he was saying was, don't be surprised, there will be tribulation for his followers. All the epistles, or many of the epistles, talk about that. Timothy himself tells us that for followers of Jesus Christ, there is persecution. Well, as we moved through the book, we saw in the last couple times that we've been together that there's this beautiful and maybe not so uh, obvious to the world way in which the Lord is going to manifest his grace. One way is he's going to spotlight, in a sense, the way in which his followers, us, the followers of Jesus Christ, submit to government. The way in which we wisely, godly, in a godly way, submit to government. And we talked about that. There's this sense in which we are to honor the king or honor the institutions of government. And yet, at some point, according to Acts, we have to obey God rather than men. And there's this outline that the Lord gives us there, and we are to be leaning into him to learn how to submit to our government, especially in times in which you disagree with what they do or how they act, the government. But boy, the world's watching. How do we submit to the government? How do we submit in our employer-employee relationships? <laughs> Many people have a real problem at work or have lots of problems at work or have lots of problems with their bosses. And the Lord told us last time, yeah, but the way in which you live that out is a... Uh, screaming is proclaiming to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that convicting? <laughs> and then finally, uh, uh, last time we talked at length about submitting in our marriages. Submitting to one to, the, uh, to another in Ephesians we learned, but also wives submitting to their husbands and husbands living in understanding with their wives. Remember that? And we ended up with a call to a blessing. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. We talked about that. And so today, we're going to move forward in, in the book and hopefully finish, excuse me, hopefully finish this chapter, not the book. Well, we are going to be moving forward in the book, but moving forward in this chapter, hopefully finishing this chapter. So we're going to start reading at chapter 13 of 1 Peter 3. And we're going to end at, uh, at the end of the chapter, and then uh, we'll pray together and ask the Lord to bless us. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. Whence, or excuse me, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Uh, parentheses here. Not the removal of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. End parentheses. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. How about you pray with me, please? Well, Lord, uh, thank you for this morning and for your word. Wow, powerful. Lord, help us to understand what you're saying. Lord, help us to understand all the implications of what you're saying. And help us, Lord, to apply it then when we walk out the doors. But of course, as in all things, we need your help and your resource by your Spirit to live these things out. So, Lord, we're asking for wisdom and strength and peace and comfort and answers and reasons so that we could love and live in a dying and hurting world for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what do we have here? Well, we've now made a big shift in the book of 1 Peter. We've seen, as I mentioned, God's grace in giving salvation. Wow, so beautiful. The salvation that even the prophets talked about and the the angels uh, look forward to and uh, uh, look about for on the earth. And we've seen um, uh, the grace that God gives us to submit. God gives grace to submit. Isn't that wonderful? Thank goodness he gives us resource and strength. He doesn't just give us grace to come into the family of God. He gives us grace to live in the family of God day by day, day by day by grace. Well, here now he's talking about suffering, suffering. And the first thing he says is, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? In fact, the word for followers there is zealot, become zealous for what is good. One of the things that we should be praying for, would you agree, for ourselves, and if you wanted to make a prayer card maybe for your spouse or your friends, if you wanted to make a prayer card, or if you wanted to make a prayer card especially for your children or the youth of the church, uh, but, but starting with yourself, wouldn't it be great if we were people who were zealous for only those things that were good. You say, well, wow, that's okay, fantastic, great. Now let me go home and watch Netflix. Or look on Instagram. Or Twitter. Or the internet at images and things that aren't good. And we allow, as Christians, for them to come in. And here, what um, uh, Peter is writing by the Holy Spirit is, a rhetorical question. 
Fascinating, isn't it? Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? There's a general principle, isn't there? You see it back in chapter, or, or excuse me, a few verses earlier when he talks about the Psalms. Don't you remember this? He says this in verse 10 of chapter 2. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. In other words, you know, speak good and well. And his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Yes, of course, that's what we're called as Christians to do, right? Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Praise the Lord. He's, it's on the righteous. Praise the Lord for his imputed righteousness. And his ears are open to their prayers. Look at this. Good things, you're reading it, come to those who do right and good things. Right? But the face of the Lord against those who do evil. You say, wow, my sense of justice. Oh, I'm feeling great about this. This is wonderful. I'm going to muster up the ability to talk well and speak well and seek peace and be a righteous dude. And yes, of course I want to be a righteous dude. But, but see, Peter is getting at something a little bit deeper than doing right and being blessed. Here he says, the, the general principle, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? It's a rhetorical question. It's a, it's <clears throat> a rhetorical question is creating a question that everybody knows the answer to, right? That's what a rhetorical question is. And so the answer here is, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Well, generally, no one, or, you know, no one can harm you. You're doing good. You're in uh, good graces of God. And, you know, even if you do well for uh, believers, they're going to treat you well. But what about non-believers? If you do well towards believers, there is this principle that if you do good things, if you kill people with kindness, that they're going to respond back in kind. And boy, do we love that. But what happens when you do good, you do the right things, you speak the right things, you're kind and courteous and loving, and somebody slams you back or discredits you or calls you a name or, or whatever? Look, look. <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, in other words, what he's saying here is, what happens if you're kind and good and quote-unquote doing the right things out in the world, out in your workplaces, out in the government, out in your marriages, wherever, but also just out in the marketplace of, of life? What if you're doing the right things and you're kind and you take people groceries and you uh, get them clothes and then they spit on you and stab you in the back? Or say you're nuts for believing in what you believe in, or you're off track, or you're a weirdo, or you should be fired because uh, you went down during lunchtime and prayed in the courtyard, and you're just thinking, my goodness, I'm here praying for the people that are actually telling on me, what is going on here, Lord? But if you should suffer for doing what's right, if you suffer unjustly, if you're a sufferer from something that wasn't right and just. How many people in the Christian church do I hear this from? Can you believe what they're doing to me at work? And I want to say, yes, I believe you. Because the scriptures say that you're going to be unjustly persecuted. Now, in our time here in this country, we rarely 
if ever, would die for our faith or even be persecuted in a way that these people were persecuted or some around the world currently are being persecuted. Maybe somebody in the next cubicle makes fun of you. But here the Lord says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, look at this, this is the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount. You are happy. You're happy. Why? Not because you feel wonderful if somebody punches you and beats you up or calls you a bad name. No. By the way, little bit of a rabbit trail, but not really. L- listen to what he's talking about here. You're doing right and godly things, and people persecute you. This isn't just uh, you uh, being happy about somebody uh, coming up to you for no reason, don't even know who you are or anything, and just maybe uh, giving you one across the cheek or slapping you. That's not what this is talking about. We're, we're not happy about those sorts of things. This is when we're uh, moving in the Spirit, sharing, doing uh, what God has called us to do. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're doing right things. You're doing godly things, and you are blessed. Why? Uh, because the Lord tells us, right, in His Word, why should you be above your master or your rabbi or your teacher? If I've suffered or been persecuted, the Lord is telling us, or tells us in His Gospel, then, then you're going to be persecuted and picked out from the crowd and maybe even, uh, uh, you know, made fun of or whatever. I mean, look, our Lord and Savior here, as He uh, moved, uh, uh, did lots of good things, didn't He? He healed people. He healed people, folks, during his ministry. He healed people. He he was kind with people. He walked up through Samaria and related to a Samaritan woman uh, who was, you know, in the eyes of the culture at the time, but not in Jesus' eyes, was lesser. And he related to her and loved her and heard her story And this was beautiful. Our Lord was doing good and kind things. But as he moved towards, listen to this, closer and closer to what? The cross and the exclusivity of it in the right way. In other words, he said, no one can come to the Father except by me. Remember, in this culture, in these places, they believed in many gods. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. And as he moved from doing these good things, they were good. Praise the Lord for them. As he moved towards the cross, what happened? People came to revile him and reject him, even in his own land and country. And not only that, but we put him on a cross and killed him. Now, he laid his life down, but those are the things and the attitudes that started happening to our Lord. And here, Peter is telling us that if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Remember, these persecutions are just momentary fleeting things. Before you can have a crown, folks, there must be the cross. And then he moves on, and it's so fascinating, and I've been so blessed by this. Uh, he says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And then here, my, in my Bible, this next set of words are in italics. I'm so glad they're in italics. I'm so glad we're doing the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be 
trouble. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. So let's talk about this. Where does that come from? Isn't this fascinating? Peter knew the Old Testament, and you folks know the Old Testament. Why? Because you're going through your two-year Bible plan. You're going day by day. That's fantastic. And you're also... You're also coming on Wednesday nights here, and you've been walking together through the book of 2 Kings and also Isaiah, you see, because that comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Isn't that fantastic? See, there was this king named Ahaz, King Ahaz. He was one of the kings who lived during the time that Isaiah prophesied. And at the, as we are moving towards um, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, as we're moving toward Israel, the northern kingdom, and then King Ahaz in the southern kingdom, look, as we're moving toward Israel being uh, taken out by the Assyrians, King Ahaz, who is a Judah king, a southern kingdom, he uh, has some interactions with the king of Syria and the king of Israel in the northern kingdom, and he starts contemplating, listen to this, he starts contemplating making an alliance with the Assyrian king. In 2 Kings chapter 16 and going forward, in fact, he moves on and goes up and explores their country and brings back some of the false worship that they do. He identifies with himself. And, and look at this. Look at this, folks. In the middle of persecution, armies coming against you. By the way, side note, we're engaged in a spiritual war. What's more real than the nose on our face, the things that we can touch and feel, is the spiritual battle that's always been going on, always been going on. Just think about the Genesis 6 stuff and then Noah's flood that wiped out the earth. Uh, just think about how many times in the Kings, how many times in the Kings that it appears that the line of Judah is going to run out. And you say to yourself, well, why is that important? Because God promised that there would be an everlasting kingdom that comes through the line of David in Judah's tribe. And you get to the point one place in the book of Second uh, Kings where there's no more kings left or no more dynasty left from David except one little baby. You remember this king? And they hide him in the temple, and he comes and he starts to rule when he's a very young man. What, what am I saying here? I'm saying that although there's this physical thing that we can see and write down, there's this spiritual war, and the enemies of God, Satan, it was trying to wipe out constantly in the Old Testament the line through which G, or God would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You understand? And I could go on and on with examples. When you're reading the Old Testament in your two-year Bible plan, keep that in mind because that's one of the themes without explicitly saying it. It seems like God's people, there's nobody left and then there's a remnant. God will and does and always will get his purposes done. But now when we come back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we read Isaiah 8, it says here, 
and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Isaiah was getting a word from the Lord that he was pass on to that king, Ahaz. In other words, you're going to cause yourself much consternation for you and trouble, for you and your people, and the reason you're going to cause much consternation, listen to this, is because you're fearful. Because you are trusting in men and people and not trusting in me, God, God is saying. And what does that have to do with anything? Because suffering often comes the hand, at the hand of people. You're persecuted for your faith, etc. And if your focus or your life that you're deriving comes from the approval and trust of everybody around you who seem to be coming against you, you're always going to get defeated and get in trouble. But here, Peter, who knew the Old Testament folks, quotes from Isaiah 8, don't be afraid of threats, of their threats, nor be troubled. In other words, become a person who is more interested in just following the Lord and having a relationship with the Lord and walking and talking with the Lord and trusting the Lord in all circumstances that when you come to the place where it feels like armies are against you, Yes, you'll listen to wise counsel, but you are going to trust in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? It, now, look, one of the things I've been saying in 1 Peter is, if you're going through suffering, which you will, then you must know who God is and who you are in Christ. And he reminds you of this over and over through all of these pages. Know where you come from, know who you are and what's happening to you, and then where you are headed. When you know those things, with the emphasis not being on you so much, but on the one you serve, you can navigate these situations in a victorious way. In a victorious way. Here he says, he... I love it. Man, I want you all to just do this. Just bring out the Old Testament. Right? Don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. It's a beautiful passage. It uh, it, it says, you know, actually, if you go and read that uh, that, uh, chapter, it says, Lord, you're the Lord of hosts. In other words, you're the one that commands the spiritual armies. You're the one that commands the spiritual armies, and you're going to get your purposes done, and I know it. And as I look around at the physical situation, it could look like people are against me. Yes, and, and I feel it, and I, I know it, but, but I know something greater and better is that you are for me, and you're the Lord of hosts, and this suffering or persecution is just for a little time, the Bible tells us, but because there's something glorious that's coming and waiting for us. And in order to do this, it's so beautiful. In order to live like that, Peter had to learn it. Didn't Peter have to learn it? I gave it to you at the first of this teaching. He denied our Lord at a time when we would say, he, he didn't really, but at a time when we would say, oh my goodness, you, you, you left the Lord when he needed you most? 
Imagine the, um, the, the gratefulness and the thankfulness of Peter. Imagine the single-mindedness that he must have developed because if you read Peter's life, his mouth is always running. He's interested in lots of different things. He's emotional. He's impetuous. But he could get to the point where he could say, hey, call back that story of King Ahaz. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Look to the Lord of hosts. And then he says this, which I'm getting at, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts Sanctify, do that in the middle of all that we're going through now, COVID. How do we relate to people that are different than us? We're scared about some of these things, we might say to ourselves. I don't know, it's uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable. I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm fearful. I, I don't know even how I could go about uh, uh, navigating in a pandemic world or navigating in a world where I've secluded myself from others who, who don't look like me or think like me or have come from the same place I've come from. The Lord's calling you to do this. Sanctify him in your hearts. And that word means set him apart. Make him the place of first honor and glory and blessing. Always make sure because of the grace of God You understand, and I understand, and we understand where the Lord stands or what place he has in your life. you got to ask yourself, honestly, if you're watching this, you've got to ask yourself, I've got to ask myself, honestly, what are the other idols or what idols are in my life? What takes the place of the Lord? What could I not live without in an inappropriate way, that's an idol. And here what the Lord's saying through Peter is, no, 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 sanctify the Lord in your heart. Have him in the place of first honor. You see that? i got to do a lot of soul searching about that. Don't you? I've got to do a lot of soul searching. Have I sanctified the Lord God in my hearts? By the way, how do you do that? Well, you learn of the Lord. You spend time with the Lord. You commune with your Lord. I love that uh, uh, song. I know some people don't like it. I love it. He walks with me and he talks with me. Right? That's where this happens. And he tells you that he is yours and you're his, right? There's this communion back and forth. There's this place we've already read about it uh, uh, in uh, Peter that we taste and see that the Lord is good. He asks us to come to him with our worries. He asks to come, uh, to come to, that we come to him with our needs. Are we doing that? Are we seeing that he's loving and kindness? He proves himself more and more, should be in a song. Oh, it is. He proves himself more and more because we taste and see that the Lord is good. And then you remember those times giving glory and honor to him. You see, that's sanctifying the Lord in your heart. That's the place that he holds, first place. You do that. You sanctify the Lord. And all. Look, look, this seems like a weird place, doesn't it? Does it seem like it to you? Does it seem like it to you that it's a weird place to put an apologetics reference No, it doesn't seem like a weird place. Just think about what's happening right now. What do people want to know? They want to know, what's COVID all about? Is it something from God? 
Is it happening? Does it happen in the book of Revelation? What happens? Why is COVID here? What, what's going on? And then as you see, you, your mind starts to race and people get scared and worried. And, and, and what's happening? And then, then, then you know, uh, peaceful protests happen that are uh, 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 good and uh, have an appropriate place in our nation. And then uh, some others come in who try to ruin it for everybody and, and do bad things and, and loot and all that sort of thing. And so now you got these people who are for it or against it, and you're wondering to yourself, well, what's going on there? Why, what happens? And, and, and then here, look, in, in this part of the world at this time during First Peter, you see, there was this Roman oppression even out into the provinces. And how do we live and why are there so many gods and is there does God even exist it's still the same thing even today and right smack dab in the darkness look at this Peter says as you begin to live like this I have something the Lord says that's greater and higher through Peter and what's greater and higher he says is that I could uh, deliver through my people my gospel (laughs) and he says look at this he wants you to always be ready. We've had Charlie Campbell here from that ministry, always be ready. Why? It's an apologetics ministry. What's apologetics? Do you mean he's saying he's sorry for the word of God, apologizing for it? No, it's a word over there to your right, in my Bible at least, to give a defense. Apologia or something like that. It's a Greek word that is speaking of apologetics, meaning you have an answer for questions. You can defend it. You see it? And here, what an appropriate time. Peter says, as you sanctify the Lord, as you set him apart, there's going to be concerns and hostility and wonder and questions about what this Christian life is all about. And I got to tell you, folks, look at this. This Verse is for the church, not just the pastor. He's saying to Christians, we are to always be ready. That means when you're um, uh, on Saturday, when you think you have nothing to do, and you run down to the grocery store, and you say, hey, God bless you, and maybe the uh, grocer or the person who's packing your bag starts to weep. He just, it comes out of nowhere. And she or he is weeping and you ask what's wrong and they say, well, my goodness, my baby died. And I just don't know if God is real. Or my dad died when I was a little kid or my dad was abusive when I was a little kid or, or whatever. And they give you uh, tough situations. That's, did God create evil? Uh, uh, you hear that a lot. Or, or some of the different questions that people have. Always be ready to give a defense when people ask for it. Sometimes though, by the way, a side note, sometimes it's just right and good just to the grocer down at the grocery store. Just give them a hug. Tell them God loves them. You don't have to give them all the answers all at once, but when they ask and they're sincerely ready, you be ready to give a defense, an answer, an answer to everyone, anyone, all the people who ask you what? Why are you so happy in the middle of a persecution? Folks, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're putting 
comments on social media that are not godly, you're in sin, and so am I. You're in sin, and so am I. If you're putting non-godly things out there into the stream of ideas or the marketplace where people go and look at... No, no, he says always be ready to give a defense. What about to everyone or anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you? This is beautiful because somebody asks you a question. Then you turn around and you say, well, listen, here's what I know is that I have hope, a confident assurance of who I am and where I'm going. And you can laugh, you don't say it like this probably, you can laugh and joke around about what I think and what I feel, but I know, I know. And I'm solid and stable, you probably don't say that, but you're, you, you know, they see you and you're solid and you're stable and you're loving and you're smiling and you're giving and you're serving and you're laying your life down in the middle of a pandemic or at a time when uh, other people are not feeling very good here in this country and you're laying your life down for them and loving them and people are coming and saying, what is, what's, what is up with you? They're asking you a question. Why? Why can you do this? How can you do this? You give them a reason for the hope that is in you. So you know, look at this, you know the reasons to the answers or to the questions. You know you've thought, listen, it's a reasoning. You've thought it out. You've studied the word. You've spent time with the Lord. You've thought about his word and his, uh, uh, his principles. And you're able, we all should be able, folks, to share the gospel we all should be able to defend our faith, all of us. Is there anything wrong if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer to saying this? I don't know, but I'm going to find out, and I'll get back to you. You don't have to be a, a scared. You don't have to be an expert, but you need to give answers and defend the faith in the right way. So do I. So do I. So, why is he doing this? Oh, by the way, you give reasons. You give it about the hope that's in you. Who's in you? Christ is in you, the hope of glory. <laughs> and then the other thing is, I want you to see this. I want, I want, oh, people in Facebook land or in YouTube land, I really want you to see this. Do it with meekness. Do it with meekness. Do it with love. Just go watch some Ravi Zacharias videos. Just, just watch the gentleness just oozing out of this guy. The patience just oozing out of this guy. The brotherly kindness just oozing out of this guy as this guy tells the absolute truth to people who don't believe like he does. It's such a perfect example of what God's love is in defending the faith. Here he calls us to meekness. You're not trying to win the argument. You are trying and charged with winning and loving the soul, the person. You do it with meekness and with reverence, with respect for people and respect for God. Remember, when you're sharing the gospel or you're defending the faith, uh, one, uh, William Barclay says, he, he says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but he says, act as if God is there to enjoy your conversation. And he is there 
to enjoy your conversation. Remember, God's there. You're not called to be the prosecuting attorney. You're called to be a witness. Here's what I know has happened, and I know from the Bible, and I know about Jesus. Here are the facts. And then let the Lord do it. You're called to do this with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Good conscience. Now, what's that all about? A good conscience. Well, uh, this is mentioned several times in the Bible, right? A good conscience. Con means with. Science means to know. In other words, to know with. A conscience, to know with. It's an inter- uh, some have said it's an internal judge. Another pastor has said, I like this one, a divinely implanted mechanism that enables us to know with, to evaluate things and to approve, or excuse me, our conscience uh, approves or accuses. Did you catch that? Our conscience approves or accuses our actions. You could read that in Romans 2, 14 and 15. Our conscience can become defiled as we sin. Warren Wearsby says, think of like a windshield. As we sin and there's dirt that comes onto the windshield, our windshield becomes defiled. We can't see as well. And what uh, makes the windshield clean. Well, in a car, it's the solution. But in our life, it's a confession of sin and getting back to the Word and being obedient to it. So we can have a defiled conscience. But the Bible says, and that's in Titus 1.15, but in 1 Timothy 4.2, it says we can have a seared, S-E-A-R-E-D conscience. Man, don't you see this in that world? When somebody has been so sinned against Time after time after time, there's so much sin against them that they no longer are sensitive to right and wrong, a a, a seared conscience. Uh, Hebrews 10.22 says our conscience can become evil or poisoned. In other words, we can approve bad things and disapprove of good things, right? We can approve bad things and disapprove of good things. We see that in the... Uh, the, the, the stream of um, ideas here in America constantly. Uh, Acts 24 tells us that we need to exercise our conscience to keep it uh, healthy because we can have a weak one, 1 Corinthians 8 says, or we can have a strong one. How, do, again, do we have a strong conscience? Well, we deal with sin, 1 John 1, 9. We study the Word of God and we obey based on the knowledge of the Word. But listen to this, tying the two together. Isn't this fascinating? Samuel Johnson said this about uh, these scriptures right here. Shame arises when there's too much fear of men and our conscience gets defiled. I actually put that in there. Shame arises from the fear of men. A good conscience comes when we fear God. Interesting, right? When we respect God. Isn't, you see how this is tying this together? And you see the stream uh, uh, or the flow here? I almost said the stream of consciousness, and that had been a bad joke because it's not consciousness. It's conscience. 
What? Having a good conscience. That thing that we know that we've done right or we know that we've done bad. You know what I'm talking about? You know it's gnawing at you. It's eating at you. Well, here, the Bible tells us that we can have a good conscience when we've set the Lord apart in our hearts or sanctified him. Why? Because we understand the gospel and uh, the Holy Spirit has illuminated that to our hearts and we've come to know him. Then the things that we've done, past present future. The sins have been forgiven. You get that? It gives us a good conscience. And you could read uh, more about that in the book of Hebrews. Well, going on, because we have some really difficult scriptures to get to here in a minute, having a good conscience when the world defames you, when they defame you as evildoers, verse 16, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It's just that thought that no one can bring anything against you, even if they do bring something against you, because you have a good conscience. You have done right before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Of course it is. And we would be blessed uh, even to um, suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, he goes on, and he gives an example now. He gives an example of all this that's happening. He gives the example of our Lord. For Christ, these are the things that we store up in our hearts. Right here, right now, are the things that we store up in our hearts. This is it. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Remember that. He died once for sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. There's no more atonement. That's happened. And we know that that's happened because he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll get to that uh, 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 later. But that means that the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one you serve, the one I serve, the one I've surrendered my life to, that one, he only had to pay for sins once. It was perfect to telestai. It is finished. It was perfect. He suffered once for our sins. And then comes this staggering little phrase. The just for the unjust. In fact, Peter himself in the book of Acts calls our Lord the just one, the holy one who is just. Peter had this theme when he was uh, writing his letters. He also had this theme stored up in his head when he was uh, preaching. You can go read about it in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. This just for the unjust. Have you ever thought about it? This is where you can navigate in the middle of uncertain times. You say, what are you you talking about? He was just. We were unjust. One one author, Edwin Robertson, puts it this way. You might want to write this down. It's very quick, but man, is it powerful. Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. (laughs) Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. The just one, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who came to fulfill the law and live uh, live out the righteous requirements of the law. Uh, The Lord, our 
Savior even dealt with the consequence of the law. You catching that? So he lived a perfect life. He was innocent. He could have called down legions of angels to take him from what was coming, the the cup of wrath that he was drinking, the the wrath of God that he was going to drink, the, the cross of Christ where all the sins were imputed to him, where he took on all that was coming for us. This just one died for the unjust ones, We like sheep, all of us have gone astray. None of us are good. No, not one. None of us have done righteous. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We we haven't done what he's asked. We fall short. And this perfect one who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and fulfilled the consequence of the law or defeated the consequence of the law, that's death. This one came out of the heavens. To become, Psalm 22 says, a worm, lower than the low. He stooped. He was just, I'm not. It's staggering, it's immense, it's powerful. And Edwin Robertson says, only forgiveness without reason. What's the reason, Lord? Somebody says, why would the just one die for the unjust one? It's without reason. It's unreasonable in the best way. That one, forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. We've gone our own way. We've rebelled against God. He's asked us to do certain things, and we've rebelled, and sin entered the world through Adam, and now all of us are sinners by nature, and oh my, this one came and died for us. It makes all the difference in the world. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, and here it comes. Never get tired of thinking about it, that he might bring us to God. It's such a powerful picture. In, to a Jewish mind, they remember when the priests were brought to the tent of the tabernacle to be consecrated. Do you remember this? That would evoke that in their minds. Because why? The priests were now the people who got access to God. And to a Greek mind, to a worldly mind at the time, you understand that if you came into the king's courts, there was a guy who stood there, a person who stood there, and they checked your credentials And if your credentials were right, and if you had an appointment, this person would escort you in to the presence of God. And that's the idea he's uh, uh, saying here in the Greek that he's bringing us to God. We have access to God. We now have uh, access into the grace in which we stand, Romans 5. I told you that, Ephesians 2.18. We have access to the Father. Remember Hebrews 4, 16, we have access to the throne room of God because there's really not many people or nobody in here. There are not nobodies, but there's hardly any in here. I can't believe how exciting this principle is. It will change your life, but nobody's saying anything in here. It's odd to preach to an empty room. But this is so powerful that we have access to the creator of the universe because he paid for sins once for all. That's important because here comes a puzzling scripture. And you must know, right? Before we begin here, in Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible tells us that our physical death, here we go, ends the opportunity for salvation. 
Because what we're about ready to learn, there are many different views. But certainly one view is not accurate. (laughs) And that view is that people, after they die physically, get another chance. You can't just preach on one little text and ignore the rest of the Bible. The Bible says that Hebrews 9 tells us that you only have one opportunity in this life, the life you live now. Today is the day of salvation. Hebrews 9.27, death ends the opportunity for salvation when he says it's appointed once to die and then the judgment. Okay? So think of that principle as we read what we're about ready to read. So, the one that the just for the unjust, verse 18, might bring us to God. He being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And that's kind of a funny way of saying it, because it's probably not, a, should not be capitalized in the original language. And there probably should not be a definite article there. And so there's many different views about what we're about ready to study. Look in verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who went to preach to the spirits in prison? Jesus. In the time between the time that he died and the time that he rose again, many people believe that in the spirit he went not to hell. There are some people who teach that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel like an evangelistic message. The word they use here for preached is not the evangelistic word for preach. It's the proclaiming word for preached. He proclaimed to spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now listen, you're going to need a Berean to be a Berean right here. There are hundreds of different views about what Peter's talking about. But you're going to see, or or if you uh, act upon what you know in the Bible, maybe you can come to some sense of this. And here's one thing you know. You know, first of all, that the Bible says you're appointed once to die and then the judgment. So he must not have been going down to hell and preaching second chance for the people in hell. In... um, uh, Psalm 16, do you remember this? Peter refers to it in his sermon in Acts 2, I believe, but he refers to it in his sermon. Do you know that the Bible tells us that the Messiah, his body would see no corruption and his uh, soul or spirit wouldn't be left in where? Not hell. Hades. And there's a big difference. Hades is a place of the dead. Hell is the permanent resting place of those who have rejected the Savior or the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, and will be there permanently. And we're going to learn a lot about that when we study the book of Revelation. Now, one chapter that may give you some help in this area is Luke chapter 16. I referred to it last time, Luke chapter 16, as we keep moving on. I promised these guys I wouldn't be too late, but it looks like I'm going kind of late. But in Luke chapter 16, in Luke chapter 16, you see that there's this place called paradise, and there's a chasm, or it's in the middle of the earth, and there's this place, uh, 
paradise and uh, this place where uh, uh, the rich man was and couldn't get to the other side seems to be the uh, place of Hades. You can look at it starting in verse 19 of Luke 16. A rich man was there clothed in purple, fared sumptuously, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed. He didn't, he didn't do him right, remember that? Uh, uh, and so it was, verse 22, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, look the beggar, to Abraham's bosom. The place of the believing people before the time of Jesus Christ, because Jesus hadn't died yet on the cross and rose again, right? Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment where? In Hades, verse 23 says, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. You can read all about this. And he cried and said, Father, have mercy on me. They could communicate back and forth, it looked like. There was a great gulf fixed between the two in verse 26. Those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he talks about begging them going back and talking to his household. Okay, so you have this place, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom separated by a great gulf, Hades in the other. You have a a place, apparently, where the believing Old Testament saints went until Jesus died and rose again. Hold on. And then you have a place that was a place called Hades, where the unbelieving dead resided. And it was a tormenting place because they had memory of wasting their opportunities. You see that? And most people believe that not only were there unbelieving dead there, when I say most people, maybe not most people, but there's different beliefs. Listen to this. Somehow, some way, he went to speak to spirits who were in prison. And many believe that prison, also in, uh, Hades, also included a place for fallen angels. Okay? And where do we get that? It's associated with the book of, or excuse me, with the life of Noah. And right before Noah and the flood, remember in Genesis 6, these fallen angels, these really evil angels, had relations with women and created people who were wreaking havoc on the earth. You can read it in Genesis 6. Go read it. And Jude gives us a little bit more information. Jude chapter 6. You could go there, chapter 6. There is no chapter 6. Jude is only one chapter long. But in verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change and under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And we're going to talk about that sequence when we get to Revelation. You see? They didn't keep their proper domain. Now, we know that the story of Satan and his dominions is that you could look in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah 14, uh, that uh, Satan... This powerful, beautiful, lovely, like other angels, angels set himself up to be uh, like God. Some believe he was a powerful worship leader, and he set himself up to be like God, and he and one-third of the angels fell, and some believe in Genesis 6 that 
Some of the sons of God, spirits, angels, messengers, had relations with women, and they created uh, real problems on the earth. Some believe, by the way, uh, that the people there, uh, that uh, Jesus went to talk to in prison were not the uh, angels themselves, but the people who were deceived by the angels. So there's a lot of different theories here. But what I want you to see, and you be a Berean, and you go and check, but what I want you to see is that Philippians tells us, do you remember this? Philippians says that at the name of Jesus Christ, look, look, every knee shall bow. And it goes on to say, every knee above the earth and even under the earth. You catching that? So what happened? Well, we don't know 100% sure, but one of the things that makes a lot of sense here is that Jesus, between the time in which he died and the time which he rose again in the spirit, went to this prison where the unbelieving dead and also, or maybe exclusively, you be a Berean, talked to these fallen angels, and what did he do? Did he preach to them the gospel? Like, if you now give your life to me, you can come? No, that's not what he preached, I don't think. It's appointed once to die, and then the judgment. What did he preach? He preached a proclamation that he was, or the scriptures were testifying to who he was and what he's accomplishing. And now these Beings have no authority over his followers. You get that? Maybe. Maybe that is. That's it. That's a fascinating scripture or a fascinating thought. Excuse me, a fascinating thought. Here's why. If you follow the flow, he's talking about having a good conscience before the Lord. What do many people in the church say? Yeah, that's all fine and good. I love that you're talking about for forgiveness of sins, but I can't forgive myself. And here, if Jesus did declare a proclamation of his power and glory and grace and his victory over even the uh, uh, powers of darkness, which he surely did accomplish on the cross, right? To tell us that it's finished. If he did preach that to them, uh, that they would know they were powerless against us, listen to this, then you can live, catch this, then you can forgive yourself. What is the one thing when thoughts come into your head that you're a loser and that God can't forgive you? What? Where is that coming from? The only place it can come from. The enemies are our souls. He doesn't have power to manipulate you, you know, this way, but he does have still the ability to send fiery darts to you. It's the only thing he can do, and he has no authority over us. So what he can do is say, you're a loser. You're, you're uh, no good. Nobody in the church loves you. You should stay away from church. Well, how could you even think you're a Christian having done that or having said this? And Jesus is telling us, look at this, that he died for our sins once for all, all of our sins. You getting it? So that now, even the people who say, I know he's forgiven me, but I've not forgiven myself. Look at this. You can forgive yourself. And those thoughts that keep coming in are not from the Lord. 
They're from the enemy of your souls because he has no authority and he's just trying. Look at, look at this. What is the story of the Bible? It's coming full circle here. He has no power to do anything to you anymore other than send fiery darts and get you to go down the wrong road. You can always tell condemnation and conviction. Conviction is good. Condemnation is no good because the Bible tells us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according right to the Spirit. You know this. How can you tell conviction and condemnation? Well, conviction makes you want to walk towards the Lord. Oh, my goodness. You're right, Lord. You're exactly right. That was a sin. Forgive me and move on towards the Lord. Condemnation is I want to stay away from the Lord. You can always tell. I want to stay away from my Bible reading. You get it? And here, it appears that he went there and proclaimed a victory. Well, he goes on and connect it. He even says, now, if that's not enough, which it is enough, he goes, now, think about this. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. You know this. He's uh, doing something here. He's saying that there was salvation from judgment of God, and it was connected with water. Oh, do you believe in baptism saves you? Well, let's look. I mean, I don't know the baptism who saves you crowd. I don't know how, what, what you say about this right here. Read what he says. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Not because you got dunked in some water. The water's not miraculous, folks. It's the Things that Jesus accomplished, which the water represents, you're linking with him in death and being raised to new life. And you can see it in the life of Noah. He got in the boat by faith with a wife who didn't believe him probably and kids who didn't believe him probably and their spouses. By faith, they went into the boat and they were saved. And it was water... That impacted them. And here he's saying, yes, that's an antitype which now saves us. Not from the removal of the flesh. It isn't the water that saves you. It's the spiritual reality behind the water. The, and what happens when you do this, when you partake of this? If, look, if you're watching right now and if you've never got baptized, you see, we got two uh, improper thoughts about baptism. We got baptism is everything and it saves you. And then we got the crowd that thinks baptism's not important. And the, the answer is somewhere right in the middle. And the answer is because of what's happened to you spiritually, you've been linked to his death, Romans 6, and you've been raised to new life. Just read Romans 6, 7, and 8. You should get baptized to declare to the world that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But look what else baptism does. Look at this. Look at this. But the answer of a good conscience, that word or phrase right there is a pledge. That's a pledge. It's like a contract. Here's what the Lord's saying to you. Do you agree to fulfill all uh, uh, and to accept all the principles and to, uh, that I have set down for you in living a life for me? In other words, do you understand that you're now picking up a cross and living and moving on 
and you're never coming back. You're, you're going to take up your cross daily. You're going to live a life for me. It's your life for my life, my life for your life. You understand that? And now you're going to live a life of service and love and forgiveness and, yes, dare I say it, even suffering. Suffering, uh, Paul told us, is uh, mysterious in that it takes us into a deeper fellowship with the Lord. But that's the life that you're pledging to. That's the life that you're answering for. You're giving a pledge. By the way, folks, do, do you know sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which is the word that they would use when they went into the army? It's a soldier's oath that I'm going to abide by my general or whatever. The leader. That, that's the word. It's the same thing. I pledge my life because you've given me life. That's what you're doing in baptism. So we have that crowd who says, baptism, the water saves you. Not true. We have this other crowd that says, oh, I'll get saved and get baptized when I want. Not true. Because you've been saved, you should get baptized. You're pledging to the Lord and to the world your allegiance. You get it? That's what baptism is. And guess what, folks? It's a step in that direction, look, of good conscience. So maybe you're one who's had a seared conscience or have an evil conscience. But see, now what you're saying, you understand what the Lord has done here. You, 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 you're, you're following the flow of thought from 13 through uh, 21 so far, and you're seeing that, oh my, it's another step. It's just something that I'm doing now. The Lord's asked me to do. Look, I'm not relying upon, uh, uh, you know, my own thoughts or somebody else's thoughts, but the Lord has told me now to do this, and now I have a good conscience before the Lord. You see it? All my sins have been washed away. Judgment on my sins have been washed away by Jesus Christ, by the precious blood of the Lamb, and now, look at this, look at the last thing. It's all tied to a good conscience toward God. How do I have a good conscience toward God? How do I cleanse my conscience? It's because of the resurrection of Christ who has gone into heaven as is at the right hand of God. It's, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now his ascension 40 days later who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Look at this. Look at this, folks. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. You can be victorious. Look, his resurrection, which is, by the way, grace, he died and rose again. He provided it all so that we could come back and have access to the Lord. What has it done? It tells us that he can rescue us or has rescued us or provided the way. It tells us that he is God. It tells us that this work of salvation was perfect and accepted and completed. And now uh, death is conquered and the rest of the Bible, you could go 1 Corinthians 15, means that we're going to follow him to that place. This is beautiful. You can have a good conscience now before God. So that anything that people could hurl at you, man, I remember when you did that. <laughs> you know what we are as Christians probably to say? 
Uh, you're probably right, but I probably it was worse than what you're saying. <laughs> God, God's taken the sting out of it, you see? God's taken the sting out of it. So now that we can come and live a life in the middle of suffering with a good conscience before God, just pleasing him as we've sanctified him in our hearts. Well, I hope that's helped. I'm going to pray. It's 12 o'clock. I told the uh, worship folks here today that we'd be done at 12, and they laughed at me. But alas, it's 12. So uh, we're going to ask them to come back up. And here's what I want to have happen. I want you to contact us. If you have never given your life to the Lord or if you have uh, uh, questions about this or anything like that, I want you to come and to talk to us and uh, uh, let's uh, reason uh, and we'll try to give you a defense with meekness and fear, with respect and love, but with truth. And if you're watching this, we'd like to dialogue with you about it. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll come back together and uh, say goodbye. Lord, thanks for this day and for this portion of Scripture that's so powerful to help us live with a clear conscience before you, Lord. And, but the funny part is, Lord, you've provided it all. <laughs> and you have uh, taken the sting out of death. You've conquered death. Now we're following you. you. We're your harvest, Lord. And we can live in this life in perfect peace with you, knowing that we're laying our lives down for you and uh, seeking um, to do a good job for a good and loving Father, living by your resource and strength. Thank you, Lord, for this day and all days that we get to live as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.